This morning we return to the book of James. We've been working our way uh, verse by verse, uh, paragraph by paragraph. Today we find ourselves at the start of chapter 4, James chapter 4, where he talks about overcoming or avoiding worldliness. Uh, But don't worry, even though there's only five chapters, we still have four or five more weeks to go. That's good news to some of you, maybe bad news to others. But uh, this morning we're looking at the first six verses of James chapter 4. If you brought your listening guide, uh, I encourage you to take notes with it. Again, we make this available every Friday afternoon at fbcborough.church. You can download that and print that for your notes and so forth. But let's consider what James, the younger brother of Jesus, has to say about avoiding worldliness. And as I mentioned, if we're to be honest, and we're in church, we might as well be honest, uh, this is something that at one point in time every one of us has struggled with. Notice what he says in verse 1, chapter 4. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So these six power-packed verses, James talks about avoiding uh, worldliness. Have you ever heard the phrase, you can't mix oil and water? You've heard that before, can't mix oil and water. But, But have you ever thought why? Why is it that you can't mix oil and water? Well, I did a little research, and I found out why. And uh, this comes to you from people who who are a whole lot smarter than I about the reason, the chemical molecular reason why you just can't mix oil and water. For example, it says, water molecules are made up of one oxygen atom and two hydrogen atoms. That's why H2O is water. Water molecules are also polar with an uneven distribution of charge across the water molecule. Water has a partial negative charge from its oxygen atom and partial positive charges on its hydrogen atoms. This subsequent polarity forms strong hydrogen bonds with each other between the negatively charged oxygen and the positively charged hydrogen. Oils, however, are nonpolar and are not attracted to the polarity of water molecules. Oils are hydrophobic, and they are repelled by the polarity of water molecules. Now, isn't that nice? <laughs> what in the world is that all about? Well, let, let, me, uh, let me just keep it simple. You can't mix oil and water, all right? <laughs> you just can't mix oil and water. There is a molecular chemical reason that the molecules of oil and water do not mix, and some of y'all hooty, fruity, fancy, smarty people, we already know all that reason, but you just can't mix the two. No matter what happened, they weren't made to go together. Well, here's the main thing to know from what James is talking about here, chapter 4. 
worldliness and godliness never coexist. No matter how much you mix and match them and shake them all around, you'll never be able to properly and biblically mix worldliness and godliness. By their very nature, you cannot mix and mingle worldliness and godliness. Actually, they repel one another. But isn't it true that in a lot of our lives, in a lot of the lives of Christians and church members, we have one time or another tried to come up with this chemical spiritual concoction with a little bit of godliness and a little bit of worldliness, hoping somehow it would equate some faithfulness. <laughs> but it doesn't. Whenever I've mixed worldliness and godliness together, they do not coexist. In your life, whenever you bring worldliness and godliness together, that does not equate to faithfulness. The two can never coexist. The key verse is verse 4, where James says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, whoever therefore wants to, make, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, from time to time in this world, we're going to have some enemies. Jesus said, love your enemies, pray for your enemies. But I can guarantee you, you do not want God to be your enemy. But when we dabble with a little bit of the world and we dabble with a little bit of godly things, that makes us an enemy of God. It's highly offensive to the Almighty God. So James says we need to avoid that temptation. The first thing James tells us about worldliness, and that's defined by loving the, the sinful, wrong things of the world. God said himself in John 3, 16, that he loved the world and gave himself for it. So when James talks about not loving the world, he means the sinful, ungodly things and the pleasures of the world. He tells us worldliness is based upon pleasure. Verse 1, 2, and 3 he tells us to be careful, understand that worldliness is, has its foundation, its basis in these worldly pleasures. In verse 1, he talks about they, the, these wars and these fights. Now, he's not talking about military struggles, military battles. He's talking inside the human heart. And also, he's writing to Christians in the first century. They were fussing and fighting with one another. He's saying, why are y'all carrying on like the world? Why are you backbiting and gossiping and fighting, have these wars among you? You're God's people. Why are you having all these fights? It's because of worldliness. He says those desires of pleasure. And that means one person wants his way, one person wants that other person's way. And because of the, the pleasures of pride and, and, and personal preference, it's turned into this, this Donnybrook among God's people. And he says it's, it's the pleasure getting your way is what's been feeding that. Now, the, the best question, though, is pleasure wrong? Is it wrong to have fun? <laughs> well, according to some church members, yes. <laughs> you, know, you know, they're not happy, God's not happy, and they don't want you to be happy either, no matter what you do. And the, and the milk of pleasure curdled in their lives a long time ago. We all know people like that. Don't shout out any names, please. But is pleasure wrong? Is it wrong to have fun? Is it wrong to enjoy the pleasures that come by living on this earth which God created? Well, perhaps one of the best answers was given by C.S. Lewis, who is famous for having written uh, his book entitled Mere Christianity. But my favorite book of his is this one written, it's entitled The Screwtape Letters. 
And it's an interesting thing. It's a collection of letters, uh, made up fictional letters, that a demon named Screwtape is writing to one of his students. And this book is a collection of Screwtape's letters trying to teach the lesser demons how to tempt and test and try the humans on the earth. So it's a wonderful collection in this point of view of, of if you could listen to what the demons would say to one another, what would they say? Well, the screw tape letters <laughs> tell you about that. And in the early part of the book, this demon named screw tape is talking about pleasures and how you can tempt humans with pleasure. Now understand, when they reference the enemy, that means God because God is the enemy to the demons. But this screw tape in one of his letters says this, never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. We're on God's ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is God's invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do, and here's the point of the matter, all we can do is, as demons of the underworld is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy, God, has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden them. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. So if you were able to be a fly on the wall and hear what demons would say to one another. C.S. Lewis did us a favor. And what they're saying is, take a pleasure that God has made, a good pleasure, because God is a God of pleasure, but have them fulfill it at the wrong time, for the wrong reasons, to the wrong degree, and the wrong way. So, is pleasure wrong? Not if God created it. <laughs> Which leads to the second question, can pleasure be pursued wrongly? And the answer to that is yes. That's what the spiritual warfare, that's what C.S. Lewis is trying to teach through the screw tape letters that the demons and the dark forces and the spiritual warfare of your life and my life will take a good pleasure that God created and will be tempted to chase it with a sense of worldliness, fulfilling that pleasure in the wrong way with the wrong thing to the wrong degree for the wrong reason. So worldliness is based upon pleasure. That's what verse 1 says. It says you first have the wrong motives. He, he, James mentioned the, the desires for pleasure. When we pursue pleasure wrongly, that means we got wrong motives. I've asked people many times before, uh, is it right for a Christian to live in a big house with so much poverty around the world today? Is it right for Christians to have two or three automobiles that cost more than most people on the planet will never earn their entire lives? Is it right to wear expensive brands of clothing when a lesser brand of clothing will cover your body just as well? And the answer is, it's not what you wear, it's not where you live, it's not the kind of car you drive, but why? Why do you live in the kind of house you live in? What's the motive? Why do you drive the kind of automobile you drive? What's the motive behind it? Why do you wear certain clothing style? What's the motive? Is it a good and godly motive? Or you're driven by pride or materialism has the wrong desire for pleasure, worldliness, 
given you wrong motives. See, that's the key. And then wrong motives lead to verse 2, which are wrong actions. He says in verse 2, you lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. He says it's amazing the things people will do when they got the wrong desire for pleasure and it leads them to do things they normally wouldn't do. How many of you know people in this community, know people in your family, know people in your circle of relationships, they did things they knew they shouldn't have done because the wrong motives led them to wrong actions? How many people betrayed their friends how many people have been unfaithful in their families? How many people have cheated their employers? How many people have ruined their reputation? How many people have given away their integrity because the wrong motives led to wrong actions and they forgot that worldliness and godliness never coexist? The third thing James says, verse 3, is the wrong pursuit of pleasure leads to wrong praying. Now remember, James is the younger brother of Jesus. And the book of James is one of the first books ever written in New Testament times, several decades before Paul wrote his letters. And James never directly quotes Jesus, but a lot of Jesus' sayings just are kind of splattered around James. And here in verse uh, 3, you have a reference to one of those where James says, you ask and do not receive. Remember Jesus famously said, ask and you receive, knock it shall be opened to you. So James, not directly quoting Jesus, but is feathering in one of the teachings of Jesus. And he says, you ask, but you do not receive because you ask amiss. The wrong motives led to wrong actions, and now you're having even wrong praying. You're praying wrong because your heart is wrong. You're mixing worldliness and godliness. So James says, worldliness is founded upon, it's based upon pleasure. Or maybe better stated, the wrong pursuit of pleasure. And then as James continues, the second big thing he says is that worldliness is spiritual unfaithfulness. Worldliness is nothing more than an act of spiritual infidelity and unfaithfulness to God. Now the challenge is spiritual unfaithfulness is so common today we have gotten used to it. You know, we see it here, we see it there, we see it in that person's life, we see it in my life, we see it in your life. And so we've gotten used to it. It's, we've normalized spiritual unfaithfulness. But God is deeply offended. God, God is deeply concerned when His people love the world more than they love Him. We may have gotten used to it, but God has not. And verses 4 and 5, it is such a grievous thing to God that he uses the illustration of adultery and jealousy to emphasize how, how grievous and heinous it is in his heart as he sees us as his children. James calls them in verse 4, adulterers and adulteresses. Now we hear that word and that image comes to mind. It makes us very uncomfortable. But, but James is really trying to teach them. Now, understand, he, he's not trying to say, I know what Mr. So-and-so has been doing with Mrs. So-and-so. No, he's not talking about actual physical infidelity. He's talking about spiritual unfaithfulness. Because that was a common teaching point all throughout the Old Testament. And it, it seems kind of strange and, and it seems almost a little untoward that, that God would use something about uh, sexual intimacy 
to describe his relationship with his children, with, with his flock, uh, with, his, with his people. But many times in the Old Testament, God says, you were my bride, I was your groom, but you've gone off with another lover, you've been unfaithful to me. And so all throughout the Old Testament, the demonstrated have been unfaithful in the spiritual fidelity that should exist between God and his people, similar between a husband and wife. And so James taps into that and he says, we're adulterers and adulteresses because we've been spiritually unfaithful to God. He was the one with whom we're to have our heart and life with, and we've chased other gods, and we've chased other things. That's why he says in verse 4, adulterers and adulteresses. But it's also such a grievous sin that he uses the idea of it, it stirring up God's jealousy, that this is such a big deal when I am unfaithful to God and you are unfaithful, that, that it, it stirs the jealousy of God. Verse 5 talks about that. James says, do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? Now, let me stop there and explain to you that uh, there are more than 30,000 verses in the Bible. That's a lot. But a, a large number of scholars will say this verse here, James chapter 4, verse 5, is the single most difficult verse to translate in the entire Bible. As a matter of fact, I'm reading from the New King James Version. You might be reading from the New International Version. Some people read from the New American Standard, or many people read from the English Standard Version, or the New Living Translation, or the Passion Bible. But, but almost every major English translation translates this verse differently because it is a, it is a tough nut to crack. Now, now, the words James used are clear. We're just not sure maybe what he meant by them. For example, James says in verse 5, are you tracking with me? Do you think the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells within us? Well, the problem is that's nowhere in the Scripture. James appears to be quoting the Scripture, but he doesn't. Now, the next verse, 6, he will directly quote Proverbs 3.34, but James, he says, the Scripture says, and then he quotes something that's not in the Bible. And most scholars say he probably was talking about just the, the overarching narrative of the Scripture. It's not an exact verse, but that's a little conundrum that he says he quotes the Scripture but actually does not. And then he makes reference to the Spirit. Do you see the word Spirit there in verse 5? The New King James translators, which I'm reading, take that as a reference to the Holy Spirit, some translations that reference that's talking about the human spirit that lives within you. Some say it's just a reference to the heart of God. So we're trying to figure out these things. And then he talks about jealousy. Well, who's jealous? Or is it spiteful, envious jealousy among people? Or is God jealous? So James, who would have thought that James chapter 4, verse 5 is the single most difficult verse in all of the Bible to translate accurately? But Hang on, in 45 seconds, I'll give it to you, all right? <laughs> the key is context. That's the power of it. Don't we teach our children when they're learning to read, look for, what are they called? Got some school teacher context keys, context clues. And they, if you don't know what a word means, you, you read it in context. And that's a good tool for Bible reading. When you're reading the Bible, don't just grab one verse and pick it up and dangle it by itself. Read the context of it, and you'll be amazed how the context will make something that seems unclear 
to be clear. So the context James is talking about is loving God, not loving the world. He said you lust after the world, verse 2, but it comes up empty, that we become nothing more than adulterers and adulteresses. We love the world more than loving our lover who God is. And then he talks about here this jealousy. And, and, and the best way to put it is, is, is God, who is our lover, he is jealous for us. He will not share us with the world. He won't say, well, just give me Sunday morning. That's all I want. Or if you, if you really love me, give me Wednesday night too. And every once in a while, go on a mission trip and I'll meet you in the middle. No, God says, I want all of you. I don't want any of you. He's jealous for us in a righteous holy way. He is our lover and he will share us with no one. That's what James is saying. That's why verse 4 says, if you're a friend of the world, and God's not going to put up with that, you become an enemy with God. He will share us. Out of his righteous jealousy, he will share us with no one. That's why spiritual unfaithfulness is so serious, even though we treat it so cavalierly today. Charles Spurgeon, uh, the British pastor from the late 1800s, was a little more direct he said, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Uh-oh. <laughs> What's he saying? He's quit preaching and gone to meddling now, hadn't he? <laughs> he says, this present age, and Spurgeon spent most of his uh, uh, years uh, preaching in London, England, the late 1880s is that we have so little influence over the world because the world has so much influence over us. I wonder if he looked around and saw the world today, what would he say? You know, I have a friend that says a church is supposed to be like a boat that goes in the water. But the problem is we've got too much water getting inside the boat. And pretty soon it's going to sink. Because even though God has called us to go out into the world, he's not called the world to come inside of us. And when Christians, the body of Christ, when, when we don't live lives of godliness and holiness and righteousness, when we abandon our marriages and neglect our children, and when we mistreat our spouses, when we laugh at what is sinful and we celebrate what is shameful, and when promiscuity and immorality and indecency are as common inside the church as they are outside the church, and when sin runs around the hallways of the church like a rabbit on the loose, unchecked, uncontrolled, and unconfessed, and when we act like the world and talk like the world and live like the world and carouse around like the world, it's no wonder the body of Christ has such little influence out in the world because the world has so much influence over us. And we're spiritually unfaithful to our God. And worldliness and godliness will never coexist. Then James finishes this portion in verse 6, where he tells us that worldliness is overcome by grace. Grace. Now that sounds like one of those church answers. <laughs> you know, if when in doubt, just call it grace. <laughs> What's the old story in Sunday school? The answer to every question is Jesus. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, how did Moses part the Red Sea and bring Jesus? You know, every answer is Jesus. <laughs> well, sometimes we're not careful. We just throw grace around 
you know, like free napkins in a restaurant, you know, just grace, you know. But that doesn't mean grace is not important. It's powerful. And in your life and my life, grace is life-changing, life-changing. James says in verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you've struggled with the world, or maybe you feel like you don't struggle with worldliness, be careful because God resists the proud. Sometimes we'll say, well, you see that sin? I would never do that sin. I can't believe what that person did. Be careful. God resists the proud. Or you see a family going through something. I can't believe that family is going through that. You know, if, if I were in charge, I could fix it here, here, and there. Be careful. God resists the proud. But the Scripture says, and James is quoting Proverbs 3.34, says God gives grace to the humble. That when you feel like you have stumbled and fumbled your way once again, God gives grace. That you feel like you made a promise one day, but you broke it the next. God gives grace. Or you feel like you've taken two steps forward, but then you took three steps backwards. The Scripture says, but God gives grace. If you've struggled with loving the world more than loving God, and you feel like you've been guilty of spiritual unfaithfulness over and over and over again, the Scripture says, but he gives more grace. The Apostle Paul talked about the very same thing. The reference is Romans 5, 20, where he says, but where sin abounded, grace abounded more. Grace abounded more. Where, where sin abounded... Grace abounded even more. Now, that's not a, a reason to sin. He, he corrected their error writing to the Romans. He said, don't sin more so you can get grace more. <laughs> but when you sin, more, don't worry. You have not out the grace of God. You've not sunk so low. You've not wandered so far. You've not traveled such a great distance from God that His grace cannot reach you, reclaim you, restore you, and renew you. Where sin abounded... Grace, so much more. James says, if you love the world more than God, that's so grievous. It's like adultery and stirring up God's righteous jealousy. But, he says, if you've done that, God gives more grace to draw you back to himself. On one hand, God's grace can be seen as kind of two-sided. That God's grace, there's saving grace. Where when we acknowledge our sins and confess our faith in Jesus, he saves us. Every one of us is born separated from God. And it has to come a point in time when we realize our lostness and our separateness. And we realize that Jesus died on the cross paying the price for my sins and your sins, not his. And Jesus died as a substitute. And Jesus bore our sins and died and was buried and God raised him from the dead. And if we'll confess our sins and our lostness 
and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we can be forgiven and saved and brought into a right relationship with God. That is done by grace through faith. The Bible says, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, by grace you are saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. You can't bring, you can't find, you can't conjure up saving grace. God has to give it to you. But he is ready and willing (laughs) For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, the Bible says, shall be saved. If you've never experienced saving grace where you have yielded to Jesus as Master, Lord, and Savior, then you can do that even today. Not because you learned the secret handshake, not because you memorized some some special words to say, but because in your heart you confessed your sins, you believed who Jesus was, and you yielded to him as Savior and Lord. That's saving grace. You didn't earn it. You can't achieve it. You just have to receive it. On the other side is what we call sustaining grace. Because once you get saving grace, it doesn't end there. It continues. Then there's saving grace, uh, sustaining grace. That's what Paul the Apostle was talking about earlier in the service when we read from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Where God said, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul had already received saving grace. God was reminding him he would now get some sustaining grace to carry us through. Back in 1772, it was uh, John Newton, a man who was a former slave trader and ship captain, who got saving grace into his life, and the Lord turned him around. He wrote the beautiful hymn, Amazing Grace. We sang it last Sunday, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Amazing grace. Notice how he talks about saving grace and sustaining grace in the same song. The first verse talks about saving grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. That's saving grace. And then, and what we know is the third verse He talks about sustaining grace. Through many dangers, toils, and snares. Through many dangers, toils, and snares. I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far. And grace... God's sustaining grace. Grace will lead me home. Because of God's matchless, marvelous, infinite, amazing, sustaining grace, we can rise above worldliness and the sinful, wrong pursuit of that which doesn't honor God. And because of His sustaining grace day by day, we can live lives of holiness and righteousness and, and godliness. Now, we, we might have to say that, that the world has, has tempted me and it's, it's tested me and it's tried me. The world has beat me up and the world has 
beat me down and the world has lured me into this and the world has betrayed me in that. The world has used me and there have been times when the world has chewed me up and spit me out. The world has turned me upside down and inside out. I've been forgotten by the world, forsaken by the world. I've been bruised and beaten and battered by the world. But through many dangerous tolls and snares, we can say we've already come through the world because it was His grace that brought us safe thus far and His sustaining grace will lead us home. We can overcome worldliness. We can live with godliness because His grace leads us home. And worldliness and godliness will never coexist. Let me finish this morning with three personal questions that I and you, each of us, must answer. Number one, Based on the truth of God's Word we've heard today, am I pursuing pleasure in the wrong way? Remember, it's not necessarily pleasure that's wrong. God loves pleasure. He created it. (laughs) But in your life and my life, in what ways am I pursuing or fulfilling pleasure in the wrong way, the wrong time, with the wrong thing, to the wrong degree? That's a question I've got to answer for myself and you for yourself. Question two, where does worldliness show up in my life? Well, what are the cracks and crevices in your heart where where like a hot lava stream, worldliness seems to find its way out? To phrase this differently, what, what are the way, in what ways, what worldliness do you keep hidden from others? What are the expressions of worldliness, ungodly worldliness, that you continue to mask and disguise and hide from others? Our family may not see it. Our co-workers may not see it. We sure hope our Sunday school class members don't see it. (laughs) But you see it, don't you? And God sees it, doesn't he? So how does worldliness show up into your life? And if you're like most people, it probably shows up in the same places over and over again. Question number three, how do I need God's sustaining grace this week. Maybe you've already received a saving grace. If you haven't, I hope you will. You can do that today. I'd love to talk with you about it. But if you received a saving grace, how are you living in his sustaining grace? What's going on in your life where the world's trying to lure you in to love it more than you're supposed to love God? And maybe your heart You feel there's an attraction to something in the world, but how can God sustain you in His grace? Something in your family, something in your life, something in your heart. I trust and pray that you have heard the truth of God's Word today as I've tried to explain it to you. And the other truth is everybody here this morning is going to respond. Really, everybody. Some people are going to respond by this going in one ear and out the other. That's, that's how some people respond. They think, I'm glad it's over. Let's get gone. 
But others of you are going to respond some other way. Some of you, God has taught you something here today, hasn't he? For some of you, God has put his finger on something. So how are you going to respond to that? You, you must make a response. You can ignore it or you can obey it. It might mean a change in your family. It might mean a change in priorities. It might be a change that you never thought you could or would be able to make. But will you respond as God has taught and led you today? I hope not only that you will respond, but that you'll share that response. One of the ways you can share it is by sending me an email. My email is john at fbc-statesboro.org. That email comes straight to me if you're watching through live stream. That comes straight to me. Nobody filters it. Nobody pre-screens it. Every email comes straight to me. Send me. Share your response so I can pray for you. I might have some resources to give to you. If nothing else, I'll try to encourage you. Or you can also, you've seen these uh, uh, connect cards in the backs of the pew. It, turn, turn on your phone, shoot the camera at that code, and it'll take you to an online uh, information card. You can give us name and information that, that enables us to connect with you. And maybe you've got questions about committing to church membership or baptism. It's a place to put a prayer request in or if you want to meet with a staff minister. And that's another choice, a way that you can share your request. Uh, and because as God has taught you and led you today, I pray you respond as God has led you to do so. We're going to sing a final closing song of commitment. But let me pray for us before we do. Lord, help us to understand how your Holy Spirit has taught us today. And as you've put your finger on things, as you've shown the light on things in our lives, help us to respond according to how your Spirit has led us. And I pray, Father, that you'll work in all of our lives for your glory and for your honor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.